Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. It is a great day to be alive. I hope you are enjoying these 24 hours. I sure am. My guest this week is Ed Begley Jr., whose 56-year career acting in Hollywood is chronicled in his new memoir, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. It's hilarious read. Ed shares some of the anecdotes with us, and I will get to a more formal introduction of Ed in just one moment. But first, I'm going to tell you where I'm going to be doing comedy. And you know, one of the reasons I'm going to do it is because a longer introduction irritates my 12-year-old daughter, Izzy Van. And as much as I love her, I think she's wrong. I think people like introductions. I think people like a little peek under the hood of what's going on with Paul Ollinger, and that's why they tune into this show. So I will let you know that in addition to dates all over the Atlanta area, I have dates coming up on the road, possibly near you, December 30th in Black Mountain, North Carolina at the White Horse Black Mountain, January 11th, Roscoe's Comedy Club in Austin, Texas, February 22nd at Cobb's Comedy Club in San Francisco. I'm going to say that again, February 22nd in San Francisco at Cobb's Comedy Club. I got a lot of friends out there. I hope you come out. February 28th, Zanies in Nashville. April 19th and 22 nights at the DC Comedy Loft. And then back in Denver, I was just there two weeks ago, and I'm going to come back to headline May 3rd and 4th at the Denver Comedy Lounge and May 17th at the Cary Theater in Cary, North Carolina. That is the suburbs of Raleigh, North Carolina. Hope to see you all there. Let's talk about Ed Begley Jr. Ed has been acting professionally since 1967 when he appeared in an episode of My Three Sons. 56 years later, Ed has acted in hundreds of movies and TV shows, including An Officer and a Gentleman, Batman Forever, The Larry Sanders Show, Better Call Saul, This is Spinal Tap, Best in Show, and of course, St. Elsewhere, for which he earned six consecutive Primetime Emmy Award nominations and a Golden Globe Award nomination. His new memoir, To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It, is a joyous collection of anecdotes cataloging his career, addiction, recovery, commitment to the environment, and most importantly, his family. I've read it. Okay, I listened to it, and I loved it. The book is just the stories Ed tells are world-class, and they're about a collection of people that we grew up with on the TV or on the big screen and Ed's insights into what life was like in Hollywood in the oh from the late 60s through today is interesting and just really, really funny. In this week's interview, Ed and I discuss how he drank 32 ounces of vodka every day for seven years, which is a considerable amount of vodka if you think about it. What Jack Nicholson taught him about acting, why he once considered moving to Atlanta, Georgia, whence comes this fine podcast, the blessing of not getting the party wanted on St. Elsewhere, where on a random night in 1972 you might see Elton John, the Eagles, Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, and Albert Brooks, and finally why being present in the moment is so important. I really enjoyed getting to know Ed through the reading, okay, listening to his book, and was a great capstone to be able to sit down and uh, speak with him for uh, 30 or so minutes here. Please enjoy this conversation with Ed Begley Jr. I'm glad you're out there talking about the book. It's really great. I enjoyed it thoroughly. Thank you, Paul. I would say that I, that I read it, but to be honest, I listened to it, which was an extra treat because I got to hear your voice telling your story. How nice of you to do that, Paul. What a wonderful way to experience it. Thank you. 
I've read a lot of memoirs where it's about me, me, me. Your book is about you through the lens of other people. To what do you attribute your great friendships? A lot of it's luck. Occasionally I did the right thing, like embracing a, a wonderful friendship with a guy named Bruno Kirby. Yeah. He was a dear friend of mine, and I met him the way I met a lot of my friends from the early 70s, you know, in different offices, casting offices, waiting rooms. Suddenly, for the third time, I saw this guy, very different type than me. We're up for the same part somehow, inexplicably up for the same part. I'm 6'4", and he's... <laughs> yeah, you're, you're taller and lighter than he is. Yes, but I liked him right away. I quickly learned he was also a junior. You know, he was Bruce Kirby Jr., his father, Bruce Kirby. Wonderful actor, wonderful man I got to know. And he was, uh, you know, also very dedicated to the craft, and, and he had spent a good deal of time in New York, and I had as well. So we had much in common, and I learned an immeasurable amount of important information from one... He changed his name very soon to Bruno Kirby, which was really his real name, Bruno Guidicciolo Jr. And so he became a little mix of both Bruno Kirby and what an actor, what a man, what a friend. And you grew up in the milieu of Hollywood, that your dad was an actor. And was your life a Hollywood life? You're just outside of Hollywood. But how would you describe your childhood? You know, when I think about it now, I... It was certainly quite a different life, but as compared to what, I just thought that was normal, you know, to stop and visit with these people on the way up to San Francisco, this old couple. I thought they were kind of boring. I always wanted to get out of there, get up to San Francisco and ride the, you know, the the trolley, spend all the time there in beautiful San Francisco. That couple was, that was Paul Muni and his wife, Bella. I was in the presence of greatness, one of the greatest actors that ever graced the stage or the screen. Paul Muni, and I'm sitting there going, can't we get up to the cable cars, Dad? <laughs> you know, I was around all this stuff, walking around backstage with him with Tony Randall and with these great actors, Richard Kiley, and just uh, thinking that was all normal. And most importantly, thinking, I want to do that. Whatever my dad did, I think I wanted to do it. If he had been a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. But I thought it was easy. I thought, why don't you just pick up the phone, for Christ's sake, Dad, and get me a job on wagon train? Get me a Perry Mason. Get me a Gunsmoke. I know you can do it. Not just one episode. I want to be on all the episodes. I want to be a regular. Sign me up. You know, wake me when I'm famous. I had that attitude and got nowhere. I got no work, of course. I didn't even understand how I got the interview. Somebody obviously called up and got me an interview for My Three Sons, which is when I finally got my first day's work. You know, who did that? I just kind of took it all for granted for years till I figured out how incredibly lucky I was. I had won the lottery. I didn't even buy a ticket. When did you get serious about the craft? After Bruno did. Bruno was always more serious than me, but he changed his name, started studying again. He had studied a bit, but started studying with Stella Adler and Peggy Fury and these great teachers. And I did the same and just did everything that Bruno did. I was not quite as serious as him, so he had some appropriate success in Godfather 2 and stuff earlier than I did. I was off distracted from my Hollywood task and possibilities in Hollywood by a nightclub act I had. I did stand up and uh, I was a prop comic. And I thought that was just a perfectly normal thing to travel around with a slide projector and video. I mean, not video, audio playback and all this stuff. I just wanted to make my life as complicated as possible. And I had no idea that I was doing it for about a decade. 
all that while you were you were still booking sort of day parts on great TV shows. I was. I took about a year off where I did little to no television and did maybe one movie. I did this movie Cockfighter with Warren Oates and with Harry Dean Stanton. Every year but that one, 1974, I guess that was. I worked a lot. It was on, as you say, like Beretta and Mannix and Columbo and these great cop shows and other Nanny the Professor kind of silly shows, My Three Sons, shows like that. Did a lot of very light fare Disney movies. I kind of learned on the job. But I had this crazy idea, Paul, like, why can't my father just call up and get me a job? You know, I thought, you know, I, I won't just ride on the plumbing truck today. I'll drive the plumbing truck and go to work. You stay home, Dad, and I'll start fitting pipe together. <laughs> Having no idea you have to train as a plumber, you have to train as an actor. When I finally started to train is when I began to work. And uh, fortunately, I didn't get fired. I just kept working as a day player, you know, five lines or less kind of a guy. Cop number one, you know, teenager number three. Learned on the job. Miraculous. I don't know if you could do that anymore. Yeah, I was looking at your IMDb this morning, and having read the book, I was reminded how long you've been in the business, but what, 55, 60 years, something like that? You keep working, the resume gets kind of lengthy, you know, and includes parts on great shows from my childhood, like Starsky and Hutch and Happy Days and MASH, yep. Maud, Adam 12. I mean, just some classic, classic television. Classic. To be on with those people, those working actors, you know, I was around it. I was kind of, I guess I was affected by the work, the quality of the work, but I liked all the trappings too. I liked the idea of making good money. I liked the idea of having makeup on. I liked the idea because I was such an albino. All the kids at school would make fun of me for being so fair. So when I say like makeup, wasn't that I was a cross dresser, you know, I just wanted to, <laughs> I just wanted to look kind of normal like all the other surfer people. I had blonde hair, but I didn't have a tan and could never get one because I have no, I have no melanin in my system apparently. But uh, everything about it was alluring to me. And finally, I, I realized there's something much more important going on, not just the trappings and the salary and the, the motorhome and the makeup, but the actual work was very important and needed to be respected and valued. And finally read, you know, respect for acting, you know, that very important work and started to get some respect. Finally, finally, get some respect for acting, the respect it deserved. And Bruno was my my guide into that world. Well, speaking of the, the world that you lived in, you talked a lot about LA in the late sixties and seventies and your book reads like a Forrest Gump type of you're right there when everything happens, when everybody's there. Tell me about the Troubadour in the late sixties and seventies. If I were to pay my $4 cover fee, who might I bump into at the Troub one night? You'd run into Jackson Brown, Joni Mitchell, Ben Midler, one of the first places, I think the first place she played in L.A. was there. Elton John was the first, definitely the first place he played. Comics, you know, comics were often opening acts back then, and that's what I was. But there was, you know, main acts like Albert Brooks, Steve Martin, Richard Pryor, just these incredible comics of the day would play at the Troubadour, and I, I just wanted that more than anything. And I had a comedy partner for a while, too. I went to Valley College the San Fernando Valley and studied theater arts there and cinematography. And I met an actor named Michael Richards. <laughs> and within a week of this guy landing the hallways of Valley College, everybody was doing Michael Richards impressions and trying to be one-tenth as funny as him. Incredible gift of physical comedy and a gift that he nurtured. He started watching you know, videos of Charlie Chase and 
Chaplin and Buster Keaton and Jacques Tati and developing the kind of work you would see on Seinfeld or Marblehead Manor on Fridays or shows that he did after. Always a brilliant physical comic, then worked on it and got even better. What brought you into comedy in the first place? My dad. I didn't fully appreciate the influence he had on me. You know, if he had been a plumber, I'd be fitting pipe now. I'm certain of that. Somebody taught me a joke when I was very young. Here's the joke. I'll get it over quick. <laughs> so a guy walks in the bar and says, give me a drink before the trouble starts. Bartender pours him a drink. Says, give me another drink before the trouble starts. Pours him another drink. Give me a drink before the trouble starts. Finally, the bar- bartender says, what's this trouble? When's it going to start? He goes, right now, I haven't got a dime. <laughs> not much of a joke, but I learned that. And these adults, again, not because it was a funny joke, because it was a two or three-year-old telling it, not two, three. I learned at a fairly young age, and I got these huge laughs, and I realized that was power. These big people were suddenly, you know, asking me to do it again and laughing at me, and I seemed to be kind of in control of the room, so I wanted I wanted to duplicate that. I wanted that again and again. Well, speaking of drinking, that played a big part in your life for a long time, and it was a compliment to the performing and the scene that you were in. So what happened at Dantana's after after the shows at the Troubadour? I somehow, and I thought I needed it to loosen up, I drank a quart of vodka every day from 1971 through 1978. And to be rigorously honest, when I say every day, I mean 300 plus days a year, Paul, I'm telling you the truth. I drank a quart of vodka either at home or out at a bar like Tondas or the Troubadour. We could watch them open a bottle, take the seal off, and pour your legitimate two-ounce double. I would have 15 for 16 of those, and that's a full quart. And I would do that nearly every day. The only days I didn't do it, I was this weird vegetarian alcoholic. I would go in like a, a juice fast. I'd be in a juice fast at two, right. two Bunch Palms with Cindy Williams out in Palm Springs, just having, you know, like grapefruit juice and no food, no anything, no liquor, no pills, no pot, no nothing. Just doing that for a few, about six days I do it. And then to go, wow, I feel fantastic and go do it again then drink a quart of vodka and do all the shenanigans and drugs and operate a vehicle. And how I didn't kill anybody is a real miracle to this day. I don't know how I didn't kill myself, which would have been poetic justice, but to harm or kill someone else, I couldn't have lived without it. It would have had the same result. I'd be dead one way or another, either dying in the accident or dying in my own hand, having, you know, seriously injured or killed someone. I, I wouldn't be able to live without, I know. I've done a fair bit of drinking in my life and uh, 32 ounces of, of any liquor is a Herculean amount. How do you function on that kind of intake? You don't, you think you're functioning and I could function to a certain extent. I guess I was what they call a, a functioning alcoholic in that outwardly things look like they're working. Like I'd run into a bunch of cars one night, Christmas Eve, 1975. <laughs> yes, you did. Come out on so much adrenaline. My heart's pounding like this because I'm on a quarter vodka, quaalude and a half and a bottle of Chardonnay. That's a lot. But I'm 26 years old at this point, 1975. There's so much adrenaline coursing through my system. I come out of the cars. Guys, I'm so sorry for all the damage I've done. I need to talk to these two gentlemen. There's one car I did not hit right to the right of me with two sheriff's department guys. So guys, I'll do whatever you say. I got my ID right here in my hand, but you've got to do me a favor and arrest me and take me in. Calm down, sir. What, what have you been drinking? Yeah, I've, had a, I've had a couple of drinks since Christmas Eve, but I've been pumping these brakes since back at Doheny. These brakes are defective. I've had them in four times to get them fixed. They won't fix them. You're going to help my case if you arrest me and take me in. 
go ahead. What can I do for you, officer? Merry Christmas, by the way. You know, and they not only did they not arrest me, I had them under the car looking for a leak in the brake line. There's no leak in the brake line. I hadn't touched the brakes, Paul. That's why they didn't work. You have to touch them, apparently, to make them operate. But I, they bought it all. That's Stella Adler's work right there. That's that's when you become exactly. de- dedicated to the craft. That's what you can pull off. I have somehow convinced them, even though I had just given them my driver's license, which had information to the contrary, I convinced them that I lived two blocks away. I lived in the valley. It's right there on my driver's license, which was in his hand. said, I live two blocks from here, guys. If, you know, I, I'm going to go straight home. I drive, okay, buddy, you be careful getting home. They stopped doing that, by the way. That night, I think that was the last of it. Right. You had indications like that, and you had indications like John Belushi pulling you out of a bar telling you you have a problem. That's pretty incredible stuff. John was a sobering influence on my life. He and Judy saved my life. Literally, I was drinking so much on that particular location. I was drinking more than a quart of vodka at that point, trying to outdrink this guy called Shorty George Smith, real vodka champion. I went after him in the uh, Smirnoff Summer Vodka Competition in Durango, Mexico. There was no competition. I'm making light of it. We were just drinking at a bar, but I had drank so much that John Belushi dragged me by the collar. Come on, that's it, Begley. That's it. That's it. That's it. You're going out. You're going to kill yourself. I was of great concern to John Belushi is where I was at. Hey, everybody. We'll be right back with Ed in just a second. But I realized after I made that fine introduction just to spite my tween daughter that I'd forgot to mention that links to my comedy dates can be seen in the show notes. So go to the show notes and click the link next to see Paul's upcoming comedy dates here. In that list, you'll also notice that I'm performing at several country clubs around Atlanta and the Southeast. And if you have a country club where comedy would provide an awesome date night for everybody in your club and have people go, why don't we do this more often? As has been experienced by country clubs, including Atlanta Athletic Club, Dunwoody Country Club, Capital City Club, Piedmont Driving Club, uh, Richland Country Club in Nashville, and many, many more. By all means, shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com and we'll begin conversations about how to bring great comedy for grownups to your country club. Likewise, you might also see me doing some keynote speaking on that calendar, and I would love to be a part of your event if you need a keynote speaker who either wants to come in with just a straight comedy event or something more along the lines of what we talk about here on Crazy Money. That is money, the meaning of life, and how to bridge that gap between money and happiness. Okay, that is all. Now, back to Ed Begley, Jr. When did you get sober, and how did your life change? I first tried to get sober in 1976 because uh, I'd had the DTs for the first time. I mean, real horror show stuff with, you know, like a vampire in my room and uh, you know, a guy hanging from a noose and a freight train coming. Mm. Very bad stuff. But took me to my first, you know, 12-step program and an attempt at recovery. This was 1976. So I was 27 years old. I had everything going against me at that point. By that, I mean physically. After three days, just 72 hours from full-blown DTs, I felt great. And I went, oh, I don't think I actually had the DT. I didn't have the DTs. I probably had food poisoning from that, that fish that I ate. Yeah, I think that's what it is, DTs. Where did I get that idea? I had food poisoning. Of course, I didn't have food poisoning. There's nothing wrong with the food. Other people ate it. Nobody got sick but me because I drank all that liquor is why I was sick. And that was a, that's the kind of denial you're in when you're, you know, at that stage in your, in your addiction. And I was like that for years. And finally, 
this guy, Billy Boyle, I talk about him in the book. Yeah. This was the third or fourth time I came into a recovery group. He's outside the meeting smoking. You could smoke back then the meetings or even in and out of the meetings. Oh, you Slim, what is this, the third or fourth time you're here? Yeah, Billy. Can I go get a seat, please? Say, oh, one, just one second. Are you still living there in Hancock Park? I said, yeah. You still married to Gretchen? I said, yeah. I said, you're working over at Battlestar Galactic? I said, yeah. You got a couple of kids? I said, yeah. I said, oh, you're screwed. So what do you mean? That all sounds like pretty good stuff to me, Billy. Subtext being, you don't have any of that, my friend. He said, no. Here's the problem. You're never going to get sober because you haven't lost anything. Mm. Call me back when you've lost all that, which you will. But here's the deal. You're going to call me before you drink next time. So I promised this guy I'd call him before I drink. And I, sure enough, I did. And it just had an overwhelming impact on me because he said, thanks for calling. Now, go do your job there in Cuernavaca and don't have to worry about it. I said, what do you mean? I said, I'm going to drink and I am going to drink. He said, no, you're not. I, I said, why? He said, because you called me. If you wanted to drink, you would have just taken the drink. But you called me proving you don't want to drink. So go have fun in your movie in Mexico and call me when you get there. And he was absolutely right. Yeah. So your career's going along. You're battling your addiction. And you're still working, but there's a lot of financial instability in the acting world until you hit a certain point. And there's, there's a story you tell in the book about midway through that you say at one point to your wife, we're going to pick up, we're going to leave our nice place in Hancock Park, and we're going to move to Atlanta. <laughs> Why did you think about Atlanta? It made sense to me because I, I'd been there many times. I've been filming there. I've done light club work there at the Great Southeast Music Hall. I opened there for David Bromberg. I opened there for Darius Brubeck and other wonderful acts in that fine city. I did a movie in and around Atlanta. And so I just, it's a very cosmopolitan city, as you know. It's a great town, great food, great people, great music. And so I thought, well, I'll try to be a big fish in a small pond. Not that Atlanta's a small town. It's a very big and important city, but it's not LA. It's a little different than LA. It's yeah. not LA. Exactly. Right. So I went, I'm not making it in LA. It's 15 years now, a decade and a half. I don't care if you're in law, medicine, sports, show business. If you can't get to somewhere on the road to where you want to get after a decade and a half, you need to shake it up. So I told my wife, I said, we're, Let's list the home and move to Atlanta. And right then the phone rang, pick it up. It's my agent. I said, calm down, slow down, slow down. What are you even talking about? What is this St. Elsewhere? What do those <laughs> words even mean, St. Elsewhere? He said, he had an audition for me. So I pick up the sides and I go and I read for it. And this is now the way my life has been the whole time, Paul. I went and read for the part of Dr. Peter White, a regular on the show. And I didn't get it. I didn't get the part. It's what I wanted. I didn't get it. The part they threw me a bone, gave me a little tiny part, not a regular, just a one episode part called Dr. Victor Ehrlich, had two lines, went, oh, great. I better just still move to Atlanta. This is nothing. I'm in this, <laughs> this show with a fine script. Maybe it'll go on for a little while, but I'm not a regular. I got two lines. What's going to happen with this? Dr. Peter White, after the third season, I think, gets shot in the balls and then in the stomach. He's dead because he was a hospital rapist in the story. My character, Dr. Victor Ehrlich, the two-line part, became one of the most popular characters on the show. Not by anything I did. I suppose I, I stepped up a bit when they wrote some good stuff for me, but the writers wrote great material for me because of Bill Daniels and this kind of Mutt and Jeff thing with me and the actor Bill Daniels. So again, what I wanted was really pennies. What I got was 
you know, millions of dollars, not in salary, but in just in, in good fortune and benefit by, you know, not getting my way. My way was never as good as what was actually intended for me by the universe. Just extraordinary. Every time it happened every time. And what does that tell you? You know, in the journey of life, you know, you're paddling away in your little canoe there. You're paddling to the port side because you can see that's where you want to get. You can see the shoreline. That's where you want to go. But sometimes the current takes you to the starboard side. And if you just give it some time, it can be incredible riches and happiness and joy and another family and another life waiting for you on the side that you did not want to get to. At some point, let the current take you where you're supposed to go. You talk a lot about Alan Watts in the book. Who is Alan Watts and what did you learn from him? He's a philosopher, a great philosopher, a great teacher, a great man, who I think was also an alcoholic. I, that's not for me to decide. He's long gone, <laughs> but he'll decide if he was an alcoholic or not. Right. I decided I was, but he certainly liked his gargle, and so did I. But he was a very enlightened fellow, with or without a drink in his hand, and he wrote a book called This Is It. And all his books are quite wise and wonderful, but this one really touched me personally because I began to finally understand what the sum of what he's teaching was. This is it, Paul. This moment right now here with you, this one I'm talking about right there, that's really all there is. The rest is an illusion. I know we have to remember the past so we can live our lives. You have to plan for the future so you can live your lives effectively. But if you miss it, you can't always be living in the future and dwelling on the past. You have to be present in the moment now. You won't get what riches are in store for you in this beautiful life. Again, it's, it's just, it's called living in the now. It's called many other things, but Alan Watts sums it up beautifully in the book. This is it. Cause it's just that as the title implies, this is it. It's not happening later. It's not a dress rehearsal. This moment, once again, here it comes right now, Paul. <laughs> there it was, there it was. And here it is. How does that inform how you spend your days? I'm sure there's days where you're doing 10 interviews to promote the book. It might, might be the most fun use of your day, but like, how does it, does it just help you remind you to just make the most of these kinds of things? I let the current pull me, you know, as, as much as I can allow that to happen. But I, I try to always get back to now and to be present and not miss the moment. Here's a perfect example of when I finally started to wake up to it. I'm recently sober and we're about to take a trip. This our first family trip since I was sober in our new car to drive up to beautiful Monterey, California. I'm there in the driveway, kind of aggravated with my wife because she's not putting the luggage in the right way, Paul. It's very inefficient the way she's putting it. It's not like, it's like reverse Jenga. She's not stacking it properly and I'm getting upset with her and what have you and I'm aggravated because I want to get in the road, Paul. I want to get up to Monterey when the fun's going to begin. It's going to be great if we can just get to Monterey. And then I realized it was an epiphany as clear as any moment in my whole life. I went, wait a minute. The vacation doesn't begin when we get to Monterey. The vacation is happening right now on the driveway in Los Angeles. This is part of the vacation. My life isn't starting later. This is part of my life. I'm going to start enjoying it in the moment, right through the center of the moment, right now, right down the center of it, rather than looking to the future for something that might happen or dwelling in the past for what could have happened. You know, it's, it's kind of beautiful if you let the now occur. And uh, I've gotten better and better at it, and actually now quite good at it. I can't talk to Ed Begley Jr. without asking about his commitment to the environment. When did you realize that was part of your mission in life? 
I became fully aware of what was needed from me and others and how we might affect change in 1970 with the first Earth Day. Keep in mind what had happened in 1969. We had the first moon shot. We began to see these beautiful Hasselblad pictures. I think Buzz Aldrin took them. These beautiful high-quality pictures of the Earth in the distance, this beautiful blue marble in the distance, this water planet. We began to see it as an entity, not an endless kind of a thing we could throw our pollution into the oceans, the rivers and streams, polluting the air and the water. We began to see it as one, as something that was finite. Prior to that, we didn't quite get that. Also, the Cuyahoga River caught fire in 1969. Also, the Santa Barbara oil spill happened in 1969. So we began to see evidence of it. Also, at that point, finally in 1970, when they had the first Earth Day, at that point, I'd lived 20 years, two decades in the horrible smog of L.A. So me and thousands and thousands of others, millions of others were motivated to do something. And tens of thousands of us showed up at different Earth Day events to have reverence for the earth and to do something to make a change and clean up the air and clean up the water. And we continue the fight to this day. How does it make you feel when you see your kids continuing that work? I'm very proud. I have three incredible children who are doing great work for the environment and three fantastic grandchildren also have that same reverence for the earth and the web of life that supports us all. So I'm very proud and keep in mind, even though we have four times the cars since 1970 and millions more people, we have a fraction of the smog. We've done that. So we can do it on a global scale with climate change. We can do it with many other problems we face. We have to all work together, though. A couple more minutes and before I let you go, you told a great story about how Jack Nicholson raised your standards when it came to acting in a scene. Will you share that story? Yeah, I had gotten this job the way I got so many jobs, just good luck and being in the right place at the right time and, you know, having friends in show business, Paul Schrader gave me the job in, in uh, Blue Collar, and Jack Nicholson was doing a movie called Going South, a Western that he was also directing. My first wife, Ingrid, said, call him up, see if he has a job here. I said, I'm not going to call up Jack and ask him for a job. No way. That's why I'm still his friend. I don't ask him for favors. I don't want to drive him crazy. Everybody wants something from him. And she just wore me down, Paul. She just kept haranguing me. Finally, I said, okay, call him up, but that'll be, you're not going to have work for me. And that'll be the end of the friendship. Thanks, Ingrid. <laughs> so I called him up and I said, you know, I know you got your movie coming up and there's anything like craft service, anything that you've done on the movie, shut up, get an acting job uh, or anything, maybe a one or two line part, Jack. Okay. Let me think about it. Begs calls me back like a day later. We got a part for you. Begs is called Whitey. Do you think you can handle that? Yeah, it sounds like something I might be able to do, being a partial vinyl. And so I went and did that part, but I hadn't a clue what I was doing still. I had gotten very relaxed around the camera, Paul, but I hadn't gotten any real life going on internally. I didn't have any kind of zip or anything that was interesting to watch. I finally had gotten, you know, relaxed around the camera. That was the good news. But the bad news was also I was now relaxed around the camera. And who wants to watch somebody relaxed all the time? You want to see something that's exciting, like Jack in Five Easy Pieces, you know, ordering the chicken salad sandwich, or You Can't Handle the Truth, or any of those other wonderful moments from his life and career. So when I did my first take of this scene in Going South, I was perfectly relaxed and everything, thought I'd done wonderfully, and he went, that all you're going to give me, Begs? That all you're going to give me? Oh, my God, I disappointed the guy on it that I... 
admire the most. I just went off in a corner and went, I got to transfer this the way I'd done on Sunset Boulevard the night when I hit all the cards. I'm going to take this adrenaline <laughs> I'm feeling and turn it into something else. Right. Like jujitsu or something. Use the energy of your opponent to your own advantage. Not that Jack is my opponent, but my opponent was fear. My opponent was not having anything interesting going on. And I took that nervousness and turned it into a different form of energy. And it worked and he liked it. And I, it helped me change the whole way I work as an actor. He's a great friend and what an artist uh, to be around him just personally, you can learn a great deal and to work with him on screen is a great gift. And that energy has eventually allowed you to continue to work for all these years, but also do some of the coolest stuff like be a part of the Christopher guest ensemble movies, spinal tap and best in show. What is it that you bring to the set that makes other people want to be around you? I'm not sure what I do. I don't know how I'm fooling him to this day. I'll be <laughs> honest with you, Paul, just don't tell anybody. <laughs> They're not going to see this, are they? All right. Let's share the Spinal Tap story, and then I'll let you go. Okay, Spinal Tap. Uh, I got that job because I was friends with Chris Guest and with Harry Shearer and Michael McKean and the wonderful Rob Reiner, the brilliant director and friend Rob Reiner. has given me great jobs over the years. They went, come and play the drums in this brief scene. We're just going to do one number. You actually are a drummer, right? I am a drummer. They knew that, so they hired me for that. And they both... Said both Rob and Chris both said, and bring those glasses, those kind of geek glasses that you wear. They seemed to like the glasses. And I brought the glasses. I finally realized people were hiring the glasses more than they're hiring me. <laughs> they just wanted that look back yeah. in 1982. It was a good look. And so I, I just did it. Everybody thinks I'm doing this wonderful character, this Stumpy, John Stumpy Peeps character. I was literally just trying to keep the rhythm and keep myself from messing up the shot. I was not at all doing anything other than just trying to compose myself. And people thought it was hysterical. Right. And this is part of a montage where they catalog all the Spinal Tap drummers who have died in odd circumstances. And what was yeah. Stumpy's cause of death again? I die in a bizarre gardening accident. <laughs> it's better than choking on yours or someone else's vomit, I suppose. Definitely better. <laughs> Ed Bagley, thank you so much for your time. The book is called To the Temple of Tranquility and Step on It. I recommend it without reservation. Thanks for joining us. Where can our listeners find out more about you? Go to edbegley.com and we've got some info for you there. And please get the book. It's available at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Target. Just type Ed Begley book and you'll find it online. Get it at your local bookstore. Support your independent bookstore too. So give it a shot. It's a pretty funny book. People seem to like it. I liked it a lot. Thanks for your time. Thanks so much, Paul. Always painless, my friend. You're very good to talk to. Okay, that was super fun to talk to Ed Beckley Jr. Hopefully I didn't gush on him too much, but you know, he's one of those guys I hadn't you don't think about too much, but he's you know, he's always there. He's just always there. And reading his memoir made me realize kind of how deeply connected he is to Hollywood, the movie and TV business, and how he's just become a fixture. And he's done that through these great friendships that he's built over the years. And I look, I read a lot of books. I listen to a lot of books and I like a lot of them. I love very few of them. And some of them I'm not so crazy about. This is one of the ones I loved just because it was just a joy to listen to. Maybe that's because so many of the stories are relevant to people I grew up watching on TV and in film. You know, you can't hear enough stories about Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando and, and all the people he mentions 
And his people were the stars of television of my youth. So that was just really cool. But it's also his spirit and just the fun he seemed to have all along the way. Now, I don't want to pick on Matthew Perry, but the contrast between Matthew Perry's memoir, and I've mentioned this both on the podcast, I think, and and in my Substack writing, to which you should subscribe, by the way, either free or paid, fine with me either way. As I've said many times before, you sharing my work means every bit as much as you paying for the work. So, you know, if you don't feel like paying, share it, share some good stuff with your friends. Anyway, as I mentioned, my most recent Substack, I read Matthew Perry's memoir last year. I think it was called Friends, Lovers, and the Big Terrible Thing. It was all about, to me, it was like, a, it read like little more than a litany of his his tragic addiction, which I wish on no one, of course, uh, his relapses, and just like, here's the girl I was sleeping with at the time. And, and it was just like a cycle of those. Like, here's all the, here's the 16 times I, I relapsed, and here's who I was dating at the time. It was all kind of like me-centric. It was about Matthew, Matthew, Matthew. Ed's memoir was really other person-centric. And I think that might be, I don't know if it's a cause or a correlation or whatever, but like, I can't help but think that even though he had his own vicious addiction problem, that his orientation, his natural inclination to be social, to be out there, to build relationships with friends, and to do other things outside of himself. I've never once in my life, I might not share his same passion for the environment, but I've never, ever thought it was contrived. I've never thought that his commitment to veganism was some ploy for attention. He comes across very, very sincerely in his in his relationships and his causes outside of himself. And I think that's really worth thinking about. Like, how other-oriented are you, am I, and if I'm not as other-oriented as I want to be, how can I develop a sense, an attenuation? An attenuation? I need to look that up, but I can't because I'm in the middle of recording this. How do we develop more of a sense of empathy and proactive empathy, proactive interest in other people? Because that's that's kind of, it seems to be very, very rare, especially in Hollywood. And maybe that's the reason why Ed's been around for 56 years. As I said a thousand times already in this relatively short episode, this book is worth reading if you just want something really fun and interesting and learn about somebody, a backstory about somebody that you've known for all these years, but you don't really know. Pick up the book to the Temple of Tranquility and step on it. I know you'll enjoy it. It could be a great book on tape for your drive during Thanksgiving or your walks to get away from your family (laughs) on that same vacation. All right, we'll be back again next week. In the meantime, Mike Carano, make me sound smart.